Let me uh, invite you to open your Bibles to the letter of Hebrews. And we're going to be in chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. This morning our focus is going to be verses 13 through 20. These are the the most important words that we will hear this morning because these are the very words of God for his church. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, And multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly, To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope Set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. May God bless the reading and preaching of. His word. Question for us this morning. Do you ever experience doubt? Do you ever have moments of discouragement? Do you ever find yourself, maybe because of the circumstances of life, things aren't going the way you thought they would, the way that you planned in the in the timing that you would have liked, and in the midst of that, your faith wavers and doubt comes. You know God's word calls you to to be steadfast and to persevere in your faith, but at times you find circumstances, timing, trials, testing, difficulty, they they press against that idea of, of remaining steadfast in your faith, and you you become unsure. Unsure of God's promises. You begin to doubt the the amazing realities that this book proclaims. You, You begin to doubt yourself being able to hold on. Am I gonna make it? The Bible has serious warnings about those who 
who do not endure and, and those who fall away and, and you can think, am I going to make it? And doubt creeps in. This is not a category that is lost on the author of this letter. This author is aware of the hearts and minds of the people that he writes to. He is aware of the temptations for them to experience doubt, for them to know discouragement in their lives, for them to waver in faith and to struggle with that. He has for a few chapters now been exhorting them, exhorting them to persevere, exhorting them to endure warning them about hardness of heart and dullness of hearing. And he knows that, that they may be tempted in those trials and through that long suffering to, to doubt, to doubt God, to doubt themselves, whether or not they're going to make it. And so he is eager he is eager to bring them strong encouragement and hope. This text that we have this morning is the author's attempt to, to bolster the faith of his hearers, that they would be strongly encouraged and find steadfast hope in God and his promises. Since chapter 3, verse 7, all the way up, to what our text was last week, chapter 6, verse 12, he is calling them to fight the fight of faith. And he wants them to see that God, that God is abundantly for them in this fight. Church, God wants us to hear this text this morning and to know that God is abundantly for us in the fight of faith. Do you need to hear that this morning? Do you know that as you labor in this life through struggle, through suffering, battling to fight against sin, to live wholeheartedly for God, do you know that God is for you in that? Do you know that God is not merely, he's not merely for you, but it is God's deep desire that you would be assured of his keeping you. He is deeply desirous that you would be mightily encouraged this morning to have hope and assurance in him. That's what this text is all about. So our main point, our main takeaway this morning is not complex or complicated. The main point is this, hope in God. Hope in God. And I want to spend just the next few minutes walking through this text to answer the why to that main point. Why can, why should we hope in God? Our first point. God gives us two unchangeable things for which we can ground our hope in. He gives us a promise and an oath. Look at our text, verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, 
Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So the promise was given to Abraham. Abraham, the Old Testament figure in Genesis, the father of faith. God gives him a promise to bless him and to multiply him, to give him descendants that would come through his genealogy. He promises to give Abraham this blessing. And because it is a promise of God, God wants to lean on that and raise it to the surface and say, then it is a sure thing. And as we read through the account in Genesis, we see that this promise given to Abraham is not immediately fulfilled for Abraham. Let me remind you of what takes place in this first book of the Bible. When Abraham shows up in Genesis 12, God calls him, he's named Abram, and he tells him that he will make him a great nation. He calls him out of a land to a new land. I will bless you and make you a great nation. At this point, Abram is 75 years old. In Genesis 15, God then comes again and makes a covenant promise with Abraham and tells him that his descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. Genesis 17, God comes again and calls Abram to be circumcised as a sign of this covenant promise. And then he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of multitude. And he tells him that his wife Sarah will have a son this time next year. At this point, Abraham is 99 and his wife 90. So over the course of those few chapters, we see 15 years have gone by, and this promise has yet to be fulfilled in Abraham's sight. Get to Genesis 21. And finally, Isaac, his son, is born. Abraham is 100 years old. Genesis 22. God then calls Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And you have to imagine the thoughts that would go through this man's mind. God had promised to fulfill the blessing of making him a nation. And finally, after so many years and many trials and testings, God calls him to sacrifice his own son, well, then how can the promise be fulfilled? The Bible tells us that Abraham believed and obeyed and carried out the call of God on his life and brought his son Isaac to the place to which God had called him and built the altar and bound his only son and took a knife out to proceed with God's command the angel of the Lord stayed his hand. Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear me, and therefore I will bless you. And in Genesis 22, the Lord says to Abraham, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this 
and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. This promise of God is given to him, but he doesn't taste it until he goes through trial, testing, and waiting before he sees the blessing of this promise. The author of Hebrews draws our attention to Abraham as an example. Just throw your eyes back up a little bit to verse 12 where we ended last week, where the author encourages them to not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Then our author in our text this morning draws attention to Abraham as one to imitate, one who has through patience and faith inherited the promise of God. He uses this as an example so that they may know because, because the author knows that his hearers will be tempted in the same ways that Abraham was tempted. That they will be tempted with cultural pressures, with questions of, do you really believe what you say you believe? With the draw and temptation of the world to take a taste of its pleasures and renounce God's call on their life. With the weariness of just continuing to to try to be faithful day after day when struggles come. He knows that their temptations will be similar. And so he draws attention to Abraham and his faith and patient endurance to inherit the promises of God. And I wonder this morning if you face similar temptations. If you're tempted to believe every word of this book when the world around us wants us to believe it's foolish and old and from ages long ago and are you tempted in such ways? Are you tempted to faithfully live out the commands of this book because you think those are too hard, those are too difficult, those are uncomfortable, those, those, those really can't be how God wants to bless me. God wants us to see through this text that he has strong encouragement for us to faithfully endure based on his promises. It tells us to be patient and to wait to obtain these promises. And so the author highlights this promise and then he gives us the second unchangeable thing that God adds on top of the promise made an oath given. He says that he swore by himself. In verse 16, the author wants to underline this point. People swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes, and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, to the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Why do people make oaths? Right? Why, do, why, do we, why do we swear by something? Well, it's when we want, we want to elevate the seriousness of a promise, right? 
We tell somebody we're going to do something. They might think, I'm not sure I believe you. You say, I promise I'll do it. I swear it will get done. We want to elevate how serious we are to the commitment of fulfilling that promise. Now we bring about these oaths, as verse 16 says, that, that brings final confirmation. It, it's a way to say, like, I'm really serious about this. But here's the interesting thing. When you think of God and God making a promise, is it necessary for God to make an oath? I mean, we make oaths because, well, we know one each other. We know that we're prone to half-truths, hyperbole, little tiny changes of what is real and true. But God's not prone to those things. God is always true, and God is always secure in his promises. So why does God then desire to make an oath in this case? He wants to add on top of the seriousness of his promise. Consider how oaths come to play in, in our society. When we think of people swearing by an oath, we often have the picture of the, the court of law or a deposition where a person is brought in and they are asked to raise their right hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? We do this as the best way our society can come up with to make sure that people are telling the truth. God does it here in this case to give stronger assurance to those who are receiving his promise. God is not making an oath so that he himself can go, like, I'm real serious about this one. He's making an oath so that his people know more convincingly that his promise will be fulfilled. He adds on top of it because he wants them to be more and more convinced. And so we're told in our text that God swears, and who does he swear by? Himself, right? We're told that we always swear by something greater than ourselves. We add to it something serious. There's, there's some sort of uh, seal or stamp. I mean, when you're a kid, right, you pinky swear. Like, that's like... The highest level of swearing, or, or even this one, I cross my heart and hope to die. Like, that's real. We swear, we want to elevate that, right? We swear, we swear I, I, swear, I swear on my mother's grave I'll do it. Right? Like, add some weight to it. There is no more weight greater than the name of God himself. And so when God declares the oath of his promise, he swears by himself, by his own name, in order to add, to keep on more convincingly the absolute fulfillment of his promises. So these two unchangeable things are given. God's promise and God's oath in order to provide the deepest level of confidence and the highest mark of assurance in order to do what? In order to greatly encourage believers. This is the heart of God. The heart 
of God is for those who follow him to be greatly encouraged, to be fully assured that he will fulfill his promises to keep them, to strongly encourage them. And these two unchangeable things are able to provide strong encouragement, not because promises are so encouraging or oaths, but because of the one who is giving them to us, God himself. So that brings us to the the second thing on which we can hope in God. We have these two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, and now we have in verse 17, the unchanging character of God and his Purposes. Verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. As this passage reveals the heart of God, the, the author, he is, he is so eager to show his readers that God is going above and beyond to show them more convincingly how much he wants them to have hope. He does not want any of those in the church to hear these words and leave with any ability to argue for a reason why they may not have hope. He is desperate for them to see that they can and must have hope and his desire flows out of the very character of God. And so the author reminds the readers that there is surety of these things because God is the one who gives them and that is by his very nature and character from which these promises and oaths flow. He reminds them in verse 18, that it is impossible for God to lie. Listen, this is not a statement of how good a truth teller God is. This is a statement of the very nature and character that God is incapable of failing to be true. He cannot be false in any of his ways. For God to lie, even to slightly waver from a truth or a promise, would be an act and a thought in complete contradiction to who he is. One commentator puts it this way. He says, what separates God from human beings is his unchangeableness. He does not change course, nor does he lie. God can't, can't be God and deviate from his nature. He wouldn't be God if he lied. God cannot lie. It is impossible for him to lie. And so we can be sure of hope because God in his and out of his very nature has promised and given an oath to bless and to keep. And there is no lying in God. His deep desire to bring strong encouragement through this promise and oath is, is set upon his unchanging nature and his, pro- his purposes that will not deviate. What are his purposes? What is the purpose of God in the day that this was written 
and in our day this morning. The very purpose of God is to redeem. God is out to bring back and to restore what has been lost, what has been broken because of sin, what, what separation has happened because of those who have rebelled against his good and sovereign rule and been separated by sin. God is out and at work to restore and bring back fellowship, to take sinners and bring them into a relationship with him. God is eager to restore. This is his purposes, and they will not waver, nor will they fail. God wants to bless those who by faith are heirs of the promise that comes through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becoming a man, taking on flesh, living a life of perfect obedience, dying on the cross as a substitute for sinners and being raised from the dead in vindication. This work of Jesus Christ is the work of redemption. It is an eternal work, the purposes of God that will not fail. And so those who by faith and patience receive the blessing of salvation through Jesus Christ, this Jesus Christ who our text tells us is the high priest and anchor for our souls. Point number three, for why I don't want any of us to leave here this morning without hope. Jesus is the high priest and anchor for the soul. Look at verses 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now if you remember back in chapter 5 the author of this book was exhorting the church to be steadfast and not be hard of heart. And then he started to talk about the high priesthood of Christ and Melchizedek. And then he was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're still a little immature. Let me address them again and urge them again. And so he got interrupted by that thought. And he encourages them to be steadfast, to watch out that they don't fall away, to be careful of dull of hearing, and to endure, to not be sluggish. And then here in our text this morning, he is encouraging them by these great promises, but he's eager to get back to this high priestly role of Christ. And so these verses, they serve as this segue because throughout the next few chapters, we're going to go deep into that role of Christ and who Melchizedek is. But this morning, there is a vital connection for us to understand. Psalm 110 verse 4 you don't have to turn there. Our author has already quoted back in chapter 5, and he'll quote it again in chapter 7. He brings these things together. In Psalm 110, verse 4, there is a prophetic promise, a prophetic oath given. The psalmist says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. The oath of God, the prophetic oath recorded for us in the Psalms is this unwavering, never failing, cannot be a lie promise of God that he will provide a high priest forever for those who need him. And this prophetic oath of this psalm has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is what the author is unpacking. This oath is given to the readers so that they have more confidence and more assurance. We have already talked about the significance of God making an oath, and here he wraps that oath into this promise of the high priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek, meaning he will never end to serve in this role. This high priest, Jesus, our text tells us, enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This is a picture of the, the inner room, the holy of holies in the Old Testament temple, where the high priest would go, and none other. And he would go just once a year on the day of atonement to make sacrifice for the propitiation of the sins of the people. The high priest, one day a year, enters behind the curtain to the inner place as the representative before God, in the presence of God, to make satisfaction for the sins of all the people before a holy God. Jesus Christ has entered the Holy of Holies. The high priest has gone before us to satisfy for all of our sins, for those who trust in him. He has gone to the inner place, the holy of holies. And the writers of the gospel tell us that when Jesus hung on that cross and breathed his last, that the veil that hung in the temple, separating the outer rooms from that inner place, that veil representing a separation of the presence of God and sinners, that veil was torn from top to bottom, making a way for those who were apart from God to have fellowship with him. Jesus, this high priest, is a forerunner. He has gone before us to secure a place so that those united to him by faith in union with Christ, we too will enter the holy place. We too will go where he has gone in the presence of God himself. United to him by faith. Our high priest as a forerunner has gone behind the curtain so that those who trust and believe in him will go there too and be with God in his presence forever. And through this priestly office, Christ has become an anchor for the soul. Now what does an anchor do? An anchor, we, we throw it overboard on a boat 
It finds its way to the bottom, to some solid ground, and it, it digs in and secures. An anchor grounds a ship where it is and keeps it secure so that that ship is not moved, is not tossed from its place, and does not become shipwreck. This is the anchor of Christ for the soul. For those who follow Christ, he is this anchor that is not tossed down into the sea, but is cast up into heaven, into the inner place where the presence of God dwells. That anchor goes and grounds and secures the believer in Christ that, that we may not be moved and may not be wrecked. This is the anchor for our souls. This tells us that we have an anchor in heaven, hooked solidly on the unchanging covenant promises of God in the holy place. So there it is. The reasons why we, none of us, should leave here without hope that we have been given two unchangeable things, God's promise and his oath, that that has come by his unchanging character and purpose, and that there is a high priest and anchor for the soul. But we have to ask this question. Is that my hope? Who, who gets this hope? Who is it for? Is it for me? The author tells us in verse 17 that this hope is, first, for those who are heirs of the promise. The promise given to Abraham was his, to lay hold of through faith. Abraham received the blessing and the promise of God that he would be the father of a great nation. And yes, Abraham became the father of the nation of Israel. But again and again throughout Scripture, we see that the true descendants of Abraham are those who, by faith, receive the promise. We're told that Abraham received the promise by faith. It was counted to him as righteousness. And so everyone who holds faith as Abraham does receives the promises that were granted to him. The promise is for all those who receive it by faith, by trusting the salvation that God has provided, God the Father, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.29 says this, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the question is, are you Christ's? This morning, do you believe the simple and yet profound enduring message of the gospel, that you have no hope in yourself to be rescued from sin, to be delivered from the destiny of hell apart from God, that there is no working hard enough in you, that you must cast all of your hope, all of your faith, all of your trust on the man, Jesus Christ, in what he has done. Do you have that faith? Do you believe that Jesus is this Savior and this 
king, that he is this high priest? Have you surrendered your life completely to this gospel news and therefore to his rule over your life? If you have, then you're heirs of the promise. And this morning, you should be strongly encouraged, for you have great hope. Verse 18 tells us who this hope is for also. The author says, for those who have fled for refuge. Those who flee for refuge are the ones who are fleeing from hopeless ends and setting their hope on this hope that is set before us. This feeling, this idea of this hope set before us is this exalted Christ. He is this sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. So you must ask yourself this morning, have I fled for refuge in Christ? Is Jesus Christ the anchor for my soul? Is he the one to which I tie myself to for all of my hope? Is he the one that I find myself again and again when I experience difficult circumstances, trials and testing of faith that I want to tie myself to? Is he your anchor? Is he your, your joy? When Jesus Christ becomes your anchor, then you have a source of unwavering joy. I'm, I'm talking about authentic, eternal joy. Not flittering tastes of happiness that the world teases us with. I'm talking about joy in the midst of the storms and trials of life, where everything around us circumstantially seems to be falling and failing and crumbling, and yet there is this anchor of authentic, unwavering joy because it's not hooked to the circumstances of this world. It is hooked securely on the covenant promises of God in the Holy of Holies. And therefore, there is no drifting. There is my joy out of the reach of the circumstances of this world. And therefore, I can have it every day. Is that your anchor? Is that your joy? And if it is, oh, hold on to it. And if it isn't, then I encourage you this morning because God is eager to give you that hope. Cast yourself before him. Pray and ask that he would fill you, that he would rescue you and save you and tie you to this anchor. So what do we do with this? What do, what do we do with this this week? Because this text is not meant to give you some encouragement for your ride home. No, no. This is meant to give you God's mighty encouragement for your life of endurance in fighting the fight of faith. So what do we do with this? Well, anchors only work when they're secure at both ends. If you are on a ship 
and you saw the storm coming in the distance, and you watched the captain of the ship throw the anchor overboard so you might be secured, and then lay the rope across the bow. Would that give you security? It must be tied securely. So what do we do with the other end of this anchor? Get it around you. Marvel at this reality. Wrap yourself up in it. Meditate on it day and night. Think about it. Sing about it. Pray about it. Talk to one another about it. Rest in it. Endure in it. Look again and again that the almighty God of the universe wants you, Christian, to be strongly encouraged by his promises to keep you to the end. Oh, this anchor, we must tie our souls to it. And when we do, this truth serves our souls as a blessed assurance. And there, there you will find a hope that endures. Let's pray. Our gracious, kind, loving God, God of truth and might, God of working salvation on behalf of sinners, God, you are a God of promise and of oath. You are a God who has secured for us an anchor for our souls. This great high priest, the treasure of our lives, Jesus Christ, make us a people tied securely to it. Fill us with the wonder of this truth. May all of us know strong encouragement no matter what we are experiencing in our lives. May you be exalted in our souls today, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.